1: It's another brand new week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you so much for joining uh, us for uh, today's show. We're going to hit September uh, before the week is out, but I looked at the forecast. It doesn't appear to me that the weather is paying much attention to the fact that we're beginning to move into the fall season. It looks like it's going to be pretty hot all week. And of course, politics is hotter than ever, with Election Day approaching much more rapidly than many of us really kind of can comprehend at this point. Uh, So we're going to talk about politics uh, on the show today, as we usually do. Um, If you watch the Sunday shows over the weekend, uh, then you know that um, a very big topic was reaction to President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Uh, A lot of controversy around that. We're going to talk about that a little later in the show. And um, abortion, the victory of Pat Ryan in a special election Democrat in New York, who ran largely on preserving a woman's right to choose, uh, won that special election by a significant margin. And it has Democrats uh, believing and Republicans fearing that abortion is uh, playing a really large role in how voters are looking at their candidates moving forward. All right. So with all that in mind, we have a lot of state politics that we're going to start with uh, today. So let me first introduce Patricia Murphy, my Monday partner from the AJC on the show. You all know that Patricia is a political reporter, but also a columnist. Her political insider column appears on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper. And of course, Patricia oversees the jolt, which you read every morning on AJC.com. Hi, Patricia. Thanks for being here.
0: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. Tammy Greer is back with us today, political science professor at Clark Atlanta University. Um, How are you, Tammy?
2: I'm great this morning. Thank you, Bill. Started the semester. Um,
1: Hooray. Oh, congratulations (laughs) on that. Uh, Edward Edward Lindsay, former state representative from Atlanta, and now uh, the head of the Georgia Public Affairs practice at Denton's, Edward, the world's largest law firm. How are you, Edward?
3: (laughs) Very fine. Thank you for having me. Look forward to today.
1: And we're really happy to have back with us Melita Easters, who is the founder and director of the Georgia Win List, which uh, for years now, uh, Melita, after founding the organization, uh, set out to recruit Democratic women who are pro-choice. She's done that. You have 59 candidates in this cycle, Melita. And we're going to talk about um, how abortion is animating the conversation, especially in legislative races. But we should also introduce you now by saying you are now appearing regularly as a panelist on the Georgia Gang, which uh, appears on Sunday mornings at 830 on Fox 5. Hi, Melita.
4: Hi, thanks for having me. It's it's much easier to be ready for radio than television.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And believe me, I completely understand that. All right. Um, so, Patricia, there were three events this weekend that um, spoke to what's going on in uh, the uh, campaigns in Georgia. Uh, first of all, the Democrats, state Democrats, had their annual convention in Columbus, attracted, I think, some 1,200 or more people. We'll talk about that. Uh, second, Ted Cruz was in town on a Saturday, and he held a super PAC event called, quote, Together for Truth which, of course, attracted a lot of very conservative Republicans. But I'd like to start, because there was something unique, I think, about it, with the GOP fish fry in Perry, Georgia. Um, it's a, a, a big event for Republicans in middle Georgia. And I think perhaps for the first time, we saw Brian Kemp, Lieutenant Governor Candidate Burt Jones, and Herschel Walker all appearing together and Patricia, it strikes me that that's a story a little bit like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. You have Bert Jones, a full-bore blow- election <laughs> denier. <laughs> you have Herschel Walker, sort of not wanting to wade into that situation. And Brian Kemp, of course, who refused to go along with the election denier and, and overturned the results of the Georgia election. So it was interesting they were all together
0: never ever thought of Goldilocks and election deniers in the same concept. So I'm so impressed right now. (laughs) I'm going to put Herschel Walker a little closer to the Burt Jones chair of election denial than uh Governor Kim, simply because um, Walker was not even living in Georgia at the time, but he did tweet quite a bit during the election aftermath. And one tweet in particular, he said, just let Georgia vote over again. Just do the whole thing over again, and then we can find out who really won. So he's never really Fair stood enough. up for the election Fair results. Um, however, you are exactly right, Bill, in that these are three sort of islands in the ocean of the Georgia GOP right now. Um, none of the three of them are— Tightly aligned. They have not been campaigning together as a GOP ticket so far. Um, Obviously, there were contested primaries that made that impossible up until primary day. But even over the summer, we have not seen these three uh, gentlemen out, you know, kind of like riding the rails around Georgia as a a sort of like a triple triple draw. So it's very significant to see a picture. It's the first one we've ever seen of Herschel Walker, especially Herschel Walker, and Governor Brian Kemp. They have not been sharing the stage before. Um, Herschel Walker, before the governor's primary, said that he wouldn't say who he would vote for, never did say who he voted for, for governor, and said he was mad at both Brian Kemp and David Purdue for being um, kind of in this fight in the first place. So um, to see all three of them together is a real signal um, heading into the fall. And this really did feel like sort of the final two confabs for the Democrats and the Republicans before that post-Labor Day sprint that we all know is coming.
1: Uh, Edward, uh, what do you make of the significance of those three being together?
3: Well, uh, you know, we're at the end of August, 1st of September. uh, And so this is traditionally when uh, both parties uh, hold events like this, the Democrats holding their convention at the end down in Columbus and Republicans holding their fish fry down in Perry. This is, this is when you start to gin up your base. This is when you get your volunteers to get to an event so that it gets them excited, uh, as was pointed out very well in an AJC article today. Uh, with all the high-tech things that we talk about with elections, at the end of the day, elections are generally won or lost on the ground uh, by volunteers who, uh, who are the ones who are manning the phones and helping to get the mail out and knocking on doors. So this is the this is the weekend traditionally this is Labor Day weekend or the weekends traditionally when the parties get their core volunteers to events to get them excited about the fall. I'm not too uh, you know uh, interested that much that these guys got together. I also note that uh, that Abrams and Warnock were together down and were well, both in Columbus, although they didn't appear together in Columbus. Uh, and you know, the fact of the matter is in Georgia, both parties have a certain, you know, we are close, you know, state, a purple state, uh, both parties have around 45% plus or minus that they know they have in the bank. And the question for each candidate is how do you get that magic formula that gets you over 50%. And if you look at the dynamics of each of these races, uh, that magic formula for each of these individuals is very different. And so they're going to have to go in a different direction. I might also add one other thing that we don't usually talk about, and that's the law real quickly, Bill, is that uh, <laughs> the law regarding uh, how, how federal campaigns can be run and federal money can be spent versus state money uh, limits how much they can actually travel together. Uh, because they can't, uh, in terms of sharing expenses, so that's that's something that that folks need to keep in mind as well.
1: Yeah, um, Melita, probably what I sh- the way I should have framed this that would be more appropriate at this moment is to say that we know, of course, that Burt Jones has been a fierce defender of Donald Trump and the election uh, denier uh, of a theory of of Trumps, whereas Brian Kemp uh, has been an enemy. Of uh, Trump for so very long, and and so there's always been a lot of question as to whether those two, how much they could do uh, together uh, on the campaign trail. Um, Kemp, you know, now is actually uh, we're thinking it is conceivable that Trump may in fact eventually endorse Brian Kemp. We don't know about that, but I think those two being together is what's most interesting.
4: Well, that is interesting. The other thing that's interesting is that this fish fry was hosted by Sonny Perdue, who 20 years ago became the first Republican governor in modern history. And so that 20 years gives us the first generation of voters who have grown up during a Republican Georgia. Those 18- and 20-year-olds who vote now have never known anything but a Republican governor in Georgia, and so it's there. That's that's another interesting tie for that fish fry.
1: OK, um, by the way, Patricia, and then I want to get Tammy in, although they made uh, Governor Kemp made a lot out of the fact that that was where Sonny Perdue got his start. He was born there. Oh, we should not forget that your former boss, Sam Nunn, uh, one of the most highly respected Democrats in Congress for many years, also hails from uh, Perry, Patricia.
0: He does, and the uh, Nunn family farm is still right down there with a bunch of pecan trees on it. So, yes, there is. Uh, Perry has, um, for about 20 years there, was really the epicenter of kind of all things Georgia politics. That's how it felt for a while.
4: Well, and, Bill, this, all right. this year we have two women in Perry, Courtney Driver and Ariel Phillips, who are running for state house seats for the first time ever in our history.
1: Melita Easter's never failing to be able to talk about her candidates for legislature. Uh, Tammy, the Democrats, meanwhile, uh, did meet in Columbus. Stacey Abrams, obviously, uh, a very uh, a key speaker at that event. And and essentially, among other things, she said it's time to finish the business. Uh, we we won with Raphael Warnock. We won with John Ossoff. And now it's time for Democrats to uh, take all the top offices, Um from governor to lieutenant governor down to secretary of state, attorney general. Um, and it was a very spirited uh, rally, um, even at a time when the polling suggests that Republicans may be doing a little bit better than Democratic state candidates.
2: Yeah, and it's very interesting to, um, to hear um, those words. Um, many of the races, particularly the down-ballot races, don't get the attention that the top-of-the-ticket does. And so it's kind of easy to see, to, um, to Edward's point, about, you know, maybe a 45 split to each political party. Um, but does, you know, the challenge is, do Democrats have a full-throated campaign about the down-ballot races the way that the Republican Party does? And perhaps that's where some of the challenge may come be, um, may come for the statewide offices other than the top of the ticket, it'll be very interesting to see how everyone, um, you know, spreads the message, maybe campaign together. I don't know, um, to be able to bring awareness to each of those positions, particularly those lesser known races, such as, you know, Secretary of Agriculture, Labor Commission and such.
1: Um, Melita and then Edward, what I want to ask you about, Melita, is um, I saw Charlie Bailey. Uh, uh, lieutenant governor candidate uh, uh, for the Democrats, made a, a comment that he's made before, uh, which is that he's the one white guy on, on the Democratic uh, ticket of uh, constitutional officers. You have uh, Jen Jordan, a uh, female, running for attorney general, B. Wynn for secretary of state, of course. Uh, you have uh, Stacey Abrams at the top of that ticket. And uh, in the federal uh, race, of course, you have Raphael Warnock, Boy, talk about a changing Georgia, and it points out the hopes that Democrats have for expanding their voting base uh, to a much more diverse uh, crowd of people who can turn out for them, they hope.
4: Well, the Democrats don't just have a big tent in, in, in voters. They're now making that big tent center poll include representation from all the diverse constituencies the Democratic big tent includes.
3: Edward? You, you know, we, we, we talked a few minutes ago about the interest that uh, that the Republicans stood together and got a picture taken with each other. But I sort of want to throw this back to Melita and to the others, because I found most curious about the article uh, by our friend, Bruce, uh, uh, the Greg uh, Why Why did uh, Abrams and Warnock not stand together on the podium? Uh, to me, that's a, huge, that's a huge question out there.
1: I don't, do, I don't know that we have an answer to that, whether there were scheduled conflicts. Patricia, do yeah. we have any reason to think they wouldn't want to be seen together?
0: Well, you know, to Ed's point, they have not been seen a lot together. Um, that's another right. uh, pair uh, who uh, I think, obviously, they share the same politics. They have been aligned very, very closely for many, many years. However, the reality is that Raphael Warnock is pulling ahead of his opponent and Stacey mm-hmm. Abrams is not. And the same situation exists with Governor Brand Kemp pulling ahead um, of Stacey Abrams and the reverse of uh, Herschel Walker pulling behind. Candidates really take a risk to take on the sort of the downsides of people on their ticket if they are not, if they don't need to, do you know? And so I think that they want to be able to have their own independent brands um, while also sort of sharing those same political philosophies. Um, but I think, it's a, I think it's a very fair point. We have not seen Abrams and Warnock out uh, stumping together. Uh, we certainly haven't seen the Republicans something together. I think all of that will likely come, um, but we haven't even really seen a whole lot of time with those two spending, spending together, although they were all in Columbus at the same time.
1: Melita and then Tammy?
0: Well, I
4: do think that you will see them together at some point later. Ed makes a great point about the legalities of federal versus state campaigns so that they might not be on the same bus, but they may be at different times. And then the other thing is they both have very packed schedules. But I do think that you have to look back at the fact that Stacey Abrams campaigned a lot for Senator Warnock in 2020, It was she who cleared the field for him to run, and it was she who encouraged him to run. So certainly the two of them have their own campaigns to run, but they are friends and they are supporters of each other.
1: Tammy?
2: So um, it's interesting to me because I see Republicans quickly gelling together. And I don't see um, that quick gel with the Democrats as much. Um, I am curious if, um, to Patricia's point, that when we look at um, the way that Warnock performed in the last race, um, could he have a different brand um, that is different from Abrams in that he appears to be more moderate? in his uh, viewpoint and in his speech um and would that sort of bring his numbers down if he seen with abrams the way that abrams has has been caricatured so um, i can see why there would be a separation particularly if there's a concern um yet and still i think part of the the challenge that democrats are having inside of georgia is when they are out, they're not necessarily together or seen together as you um, are currently seeing the Republican Party coalescing around each other um, and, and, you know, join a big bear hug um, as compared to the Democrats.
1: Okay. Um, th- thank you for that. We also know Ted Cruz, who's in town, spoke at a very conservative gathering, um, attacked uh, Democrats uh, said, I think he, Patricia, used a phrase at one point that when every time uh, President Biden makes some, quote, dumb ass, unquote, move, it just gives more people uh, reason to want to vote uh, Republican. Um, Patricia, weigh in on that.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, he, he was definitely speaking to the choir. This was a, this is yeah. his <laughs> truth and courage pack. TNC, which is also Ted Cruz. Um, You know, this is his pack, which is really seeding the ground for his own presidential run. Um, But I did think it was really significant that he came into town, um, had Herschel Walker right there on stage with him, a real showcase for Herschel Walker, as much as for Ted Cruz in this battleground state. Um, And so between um, Ted Cruz on stage with Herschel Walker and then Herschel Walker on Friday night being with Mitch McConnell, um, McConnell hosted a fundraiser in Louisville for Herschel Walker. Walker was up there. Also, there were um, uh, Ted Budd from North Carolina and Dr. Oz from Pennsylvania. So, these candidates who people have said, um, kind of based on McConnell's own uh, own remarks, that uh, he has concern about the quality of his candidates, he is nonetheless raising money for these candidates. It's not a situation right now where Republicans have pulled out their resources, they've lost confidence in this ticket. That is not the case. They are raising money. Spending money, they want this Senate seat very badly and are getting behind Herschel Walker to take it away from uh, Raphael Warnock. And then I will say quickly on the Democratic piece: um, Warnock uh, uh, may not have been in that big group picture, but the group picture of Stacey Abrams with all of the other nominees—all 14 um, congressional candidates were down in Columbus, the entire statewide ticket—and they really are built here point showcasing their diversity just with their pictures it is there are yeah. people who are asian uh black white male female from all over the state urban rural they really want to say and Stace abrams vocalizes this we reflect the state of georgia we are georgia and georgia voters should select us um as a result and you just don't see that kind of diversity on the republican side
1: uh, Melita, before we get away from it entirely, talking about the Ted Cruz event, another thing that he uh, said at this uh, 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 Saturday event, he called Warnock, quote, a perfectly nice fellow whose views are radical and extreme and wildly out of step with the people of Georgia. But he went on to say that Walker is, quote, truly an amazing uh, man. Um you, it'll be fascinating to watch how this unfolds because we know Warnock has at least a little lead uh, right now in most of the polling over Herschel Walker. And, um, and he also has a couple of really powerful issues. He uh, was behind the effort to reduce the costs for insulin. He wanted it for people not just on Medicare, but also uh, who have private insurance. He did not get that. Republicans blocked that effort, and so he has that as a campaign issue. He was one of the driving forces pushing Biden on student loan uh, relief. Um, So uh, he's had some pretty powerful issues that he's worked on in the Senate uh, to run on. uh, But that's also one of the reasons that a guy like Cruz would call him an
4: extremist. Well, Warnock is an eloquent spokesperson for all of his issues as opposed to Walker, who has to bring in others to explain what he's all about. And Warnock, I think, resonates very well with the voters. And he has that wonderful way that only a preacher does of working the crowd and speaking in a way that makes everybody feel he's speaking directly to them. And so I believe we're going to see Warnock, as his bus tour of Georgia continues, um, really picking up in the polls.
3: Edward? Well, the question is, uh, you know, how much will this race uh, wind up nationalized? And and I suspect it will overwhelmingly be nationalized, in which ultimately the question will be for voters – uh, whether or not you want a Republican-controlled U.S. Senate or you want a Democratic-controlled U.S. Senate. Uh, and while you know some of these things regarding the personalities of Warnock and Walker may play with a few folks, um, 99.9% of the voters are going to ultimately be walking in and asking themselves that question. And since uh, President Biden uh, sits in the White House, uh, it's also as part of that nationalization is, is whether or not you are satisfied with uh his administration and how he's running the country so you know um I'll, I'll, after uh, what will probably be hundreds of millions of dollars it's really going to come down for voters a uh, uh, simple question do you like biden or not do you want a republican senate or, or a democratic senate
1: okay um i want to get to the first break of the show but uh, edward Lindsay points out that uh republicans Uh, have been and will run on on biden's record especially in terms of the economy inflation uh particularly but democrats think they have a very big issue right now and that's the supreme court's overturning row i want to talk about that um and a lot more when we return on political rewind
3: thanks for listening to political rewind
1: Tammy Greer, Melita Easters, Edward Lindsay, and, of course, Patricia Murphy joined me for uh, today's show. Uh, Patricia, uh, we are starting to uh, get this uh, sense, uh, talking to Democrats, that they believe that their chances to uh, uh, do well in congressional races aren't as uh, ominous as they appeared to be for months and months Um, Democrats now believe that while they may or may not be able to get the majority, it's possible they may lose fewer seats than they'd expected. Uh, David Scott, who was at the convention on Saturday, in fact, talked about that. He said, quote, it looks like it's not going to be as bad as some people think as far as the election. So we're working hard to maintain our majority. And of course, a lot of that, Patricia, is around the overturning of Roe. And uh, we know that Pat Ryan won that special election in New York, running as a proponent of choice, all of which is giving Democrats some new hope. Yes?
0: Uh, Yes. Um, I think there are two dynamics going on for Democrats that are making them feel more hopeful and sort of more buoyed. One is that um, Joe Biden's approval ratings have ticked up. Over the last two weeks, um, he's up about five points, especially on the economy and inflation. Um, I think that has to do with the Democrats passing a number of bills um, that they were not sure we're going to get across the finish line. Democrats just feel they can demonstrate a functional party that has delivered on its promises. Um, The second piece, of course, is the question of abortion rights. And this will be the first election in Um, 50 years where women are voting with this knowledge that their uh, reproductive rights um, are on the ballot in many cases, quite literally in some states, and then uh, just in terms of who you're picking as your leaders in the others. And so um, I I really do think that that is going to Scramble the issue set for some voters, not for all. And some of those voters will be pro life voters, by the way. Um, But Democrats are looking at their own internal polling and focus groups, and they're seeing abortion rights as just an unbelievably powerful motivator among a certain group of voters who were maybe they were probably going to vote before. Now they're volunteering and knocking on doors. For those who are knocking on doors uh, already, they are donating. They are reaching out to get their own neighbors going, to reach out to their own women, especially in their communities. So Democrats see this, um, especially in the past four special elections for Congress. Since Roe, Democrats have picked those up. Um, Other congressional elections, they're just seeing um, Democrats outperform Joe Biden in 2020. They had a pretty good year in 2020. And so there's a lot of data to support what they're sort of what they're thinking. We don't know what that looks like in the end, but they are feeling much better than they were
1: before. All right, Melita, this has been your mission in political life. When did you found the Georgia win list? What year was it? In
4: 1999, 2000.
1: All right. Okay, and now you have 59 uh, candidates running um, who are pro-choice women. What do you believe is going to happen in legislative races? It's one thing to talk about the governor's race and abortion in and that, uh, and, and whether it can tip the balance. But our legislature, and for that matter, the Senate race, but our legislature is firmly in the control of Republicans. Their majority isn't what it had been Um, But how do you think the issue of abortion is going to play out in terms of what the legislature is going to look like in January?
4: Well, this is because this is a year where we have statewide elections, which a lot of people abandoned House and Senate seats to run for higher office because we have newly drawn maps. We have more contested legislative seats than ever in, in history, really, and we have 30 what I call new face house seats where the women who are running, if they won would be newly elected. 11 of those candidates are challenging Republicans who voted for the six week abortion ban and three are are running for uh, um, seats where the men holding those offices previously voted for the abortion ban. And then six women are running for open seats. So we have the opportunity to really shift. And then the other thing that happens is when you have women who are solidly pro-choice, say in a rural area, that votes red, if they move that needle for democratic performance, what we like to say is that the rising blue tide lifts all votes. And when you move the margins in a lot of rural counties on the basis of women who don't want stale, pale, male legislators controlling their medical decisions, then that improves the chances for the statewide ticket.
1: All right, Tammy, um, we know that Democrats have been uh, talking a lot about abortion at the convention on Saturday in Columbus. I think Cecile Richards, who's a former head of Planned Parenthood, actually made a video appearance to urge Democrats to use abortion in their campaigns. And, of course, Republicans, Tammy, have been quite quiet Uh, since uh, responding with enthusiasm initially to the Supreme Court decision. And one of the things I'd like to ask you about, and then I'd love to hear Edward's take on this, is um, Republicans have, I mean, while they celebrated initially the overturning of Roe, I, I have not heard too many Republicans who have expressed any deep concern for Women who are facing difficult situations, not that they should suddenly say they're pro-choice, but we haven't even heard them say they recognize that women are now faced with making a uh, more difficult decision. There's a, a missing uh, element of human- humaneness in their uh, embrace of, uh, of ab- ab- abolishing or severely limiting abortion.
2: Right. Um, so the the dog caught the bus, right? Um, and that's what happened here is that um, one could argue that this has been a rallying, a rallying cry in conservative circles for the last 50 years. This has been um, an area where you can get support, you can get enthusiasm and so forth for different um, elected seats. And even when it comes to judicial nominations, that this has been the thing. Yet... I am unsure. I think that there was a glimmer, yet I think that there were uh, bills that were passed on the state level that were extreme. And I don't think Republicans actually thought that it would stand. I think it was more performative. And then when it did stand up, I think they got afraid because they have daughters, they have wives, they have sisters. Um, I think that there is There perhaps is not, um, I think uh, there is a disconnect. I'm not sure if it's emotionally or from an intellectual standpoint that what happens to women in this society happens to society as a whole. And I am unclear if there is a full appreciation for women to have bodily autonomy. I want to have access and control over my own self because I am able to make those decisions myself.
1: Edward, is there a place for a Republican to say, we cherish life, we are glad that abortion is going to be severely restricted in many states, if not outlawed in some, but at the same time, we do understand that we now now need to provide new help for women who are going to struggle with, is there a place where that kind of Republican can exist today?
3: Uh, yes, and and not only can that sh- can that kind of Republican exist, but that kind of Republican should exist. Um, you know, not you know. Let's move beyond the issue of, of winning and losing elections, but let's sort of sort of talk about the the dynamics of this issue uh, and how it impacts people. Uh, Republicans, uh, and I do know a lot of Republicans are actually out there on the ground talking about these issues, Bill. Uh, perhaps not as loudly as they should, but certainly there needs to be uh, a full discussion by Republican candidates, uh, particularly and in, in, you first start off with those hard cases, in cases of rape or incest, or where the life or serious health of the mother is at risk, or where the child uh, cannot survive outside the womb, those hard cases. And then you go from there to the question of where do you... Uh, draw the line when it comes to abortion, because we do hear some extreme comments for, by Democrats as well, which they don't want to have any kind of restrictions on abortion. Most people, I think, most Americans lie somewhere where they want to go, look, uh, we have two fundamental principles here. One is the right to be left alone, to have some some autonomy when it comes to your life, and that includes your physical health. And then there is the, the 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 principle of a fundamental duty of government is to protect innocent life. Isn't there a place somewhere uh, within that continuum of a pregnancy where that line can be drawn, where we can first respect a woman's autonomy uh, and privacy and the, the ability to make certain decisions on her own, and at some point in there we uh, can then turn we can then sort of focus on protecting an innocent life that is viable. Otherwise viable. So, you know, these are tough questions that uh, I think folks, uh, Republicans will go, need to step up first. Uh, but down the road, uh, Democrats are going to have to step up as well. As we saw with, uh, with Stacey uh, backtracking somewhat from earlier comments she made immediately after the Dodd decision and then came back and started saying, Yeah, I can understand certain restrictions we can put in place. So we're going to have both parties, uh, anybody in office, Uh, is going to have to start sitting down and taking this issue a a lot more seriously than they have in the past when there was a protection uh, by the Supreme Court on this issue.
1: Patricia?
0: So, Bill, the debate that um, that Ed is talking about—that balance between a woman's right to sort of her own bodily autonomy and then also um, the uh, kind of when to protect uh, when to protect life—look, at, like at what point um, during a woman's pregnancy does that balance shift? That was the debate that happened in the general Assembly, and that is when Republicans came forward and made this decision to pass the bill at, and it's not a six week abortion ban. it is at um, you know at the gestational point when cardiac activity is detected that is that can be five weeks for a woman. Nobody knows exactly when that is until typically you hear the heartbeat, and then the decision has been made already it, there is no there is no point at which woman. Um, really is going to know about her options for abortion until it's probably too late. Um, I've been talking to doctors in Georgia who are really um, somewhat traumatized right now. They're turning away patients, telling them they can't help them, um, advising their friends, don't come to Georgia for your OB training. They're trying to figure out which states they can go to to have temporary training elsewhere um, because a lot of what uh, doctors have been able to do before is illegal now. And it, maybe it is illegal, maybe it's not. There's a lot of gray area. They are too afraid to take a chance with their own um, medical licenses as well as the, the possibility that they could be um, prosecuted for one, and put in jail for one to 10 years. That's just a huge risk that they are afraid to take and they're balancing their patients sort of needs and desires versus what they are afraid will happen to their inability to practice medicine. So they are in a real, um, a real bind, many of them as well.
1: All right. Um, This is an issue with, obviously we're going to look at over and over again between now and election day, but for now uh, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with more on political rewind. Tammy Greer, let me start with you on this uh, student loan uh, forgiveness uh, topic. Um, There's been obviously a wide variety of responses to the Biden plan. Uh, Some Democrats don't like it very much. Republicans have attacked it on various fronts. But one of the ways they've attacked it is as a clash in the culture wars, um, suggesting that what's happening here is that the so-called elites— are getting uh, debt forgiveness at the expense of blue-collar working people who are going to end up paying for all of this because uh, of the enormous cost of of forgiving uh, this debt. But, and the reason I start with you, uh, we've looked at data, I looked at data over the weekend, that number one says that this is going to be of enormous uh, impact at HBCUs. Because something like 70% of students who attend HBCUs have a Pell Grant, qualify for or have a Pell Grants. Um, and, and we also know that something like 40% of people are not people who have graduated from elite universities. Some of them haven't even graduated from universities at all. So the Republican argument um, is, is um, in that sense, perhaps a little specious. Maybe if they argue about the cost, they have a different story to tell.
2: So I find the argument about this fascinating, um, and this goes to the Republicans are on message, and Democrats are everywhere, kinda. So um, first, <laughs> first, um, I the Washington Post last week, the end of last week, um, had an article um, to which it was very clear that if you are a graduate student, then you had relief. If you had Pell Grant, you had relief. If you paid during the moratorium, you can get that money back. If you um, went to a vocational school to become an electrician, a construction worker, um, to become a truck driver, um, you get that relief back. So this is not a blue collar, white collar issue that the Republicans are attempting to put these, um, to put this relief in, this is actually beneficial for so many people on so many different levels. First generation um, uh, college students are getting this relief. Uh, people who have Pell Grant are far from elitist. These are people that are, you know, not that far above the poverty, the federal poverty line, who are who are qualified to get this money, um, or this relief based on their parents' economic status. So this is of tremendous benefit for a generation of people that are growing into a space where in order to get many of these jobs that Republicans say, we don't need higher livable wage to work at a fast food restaurant because you shouldn't be working at a fast food restaurant while you're an adult. So the the space where people are attempting to move into to become teachers that there's a shortage, to become um, your construction workers where there's a shortage, to become an electrician where there's a shortage. These are the spaces where there is encouragement by the federal government to ensure you have employable people who have the skill set to fill these gaps.
1: All right, Edward, perhaps the cost and the fact that the president acted unilaterally, which is going to be challenged in court, may be a more effective argument for Republicans to use, though. And of course, as you know, there are Democrats like Tim Ryan in Ohio who also oppose this. Yeah,
3: because he, he, he worries about, and, and I would use the term class rather than culture, uh, division between the folks who, who will benefit most by this, although, um, Tammy raises some good points that folks in the more blue collar area. My concern from a policy guy is, is on, on several different levels. Well, I generally think that this was taking a hammer where there's a scalpel uh, would be more, more uh, impactful. Uh, you've got, you know, shouldn't we be focusing on giving relief to those folks who are going into those industries that would be most helpful to our society? Probably, yes. Oh, we should be, be encouraging that. Should we be taking a serious look at uh, higher education in terms of the runaway costs? Uh, I went to college on loans. I went to college on scholarships and work-study, and I had a part-time job. And, and while, yeah, I had a, a small amount of debt when I got out after four years of college and three years of law school, it was manageable. Uh, the amount of debt that some of these uh, young people are coming out with, from very similar institutions that I went to, uh, you know, is staggering uh, and and raises some serious questions as to what, how did we get to this place when it comes to the cost of an education rising so rapidly. Um, and you've got to also question whether or not how viable some of these good programs like Pell Grants and, and student loans are, you know, how viable would this be in the future if, if we're now going about a policy of forgiving the debts? rather than restructuring uh, who can get relief and that sort of thing. So there's a, a, a lot of issues that, that I think should have been explored rather than simply this across the board, which is simply just dealing with symptom and not even really taking on the whole symptom, just just uh, taking a quick look at a symptom when there's some very serious underlying issues uh, that
1: I think need to be jump. explored. Melita, well, jump in.
4: It, it's very rich, so to speak, for Republicans to criticize this student loan relief when their tax cuts passed in 2017 give two-thirds of those gains to the top 20 percent of the population. The other thing is that I think Senator Warnock is very wise in saying that he's going to work towards addressing the underlying problem of making college more affordable, as Ed was just mentioning, and creating opportunities for all Georgians who are trying to enter the workforce through job training and other programs. State funding for higher education has greatly diminished under the two decades of Republican control. And so we really do have to look at both the amount the state taxpayers put into public support of of colleges and universities, and also the bloated bureaucracy of how colleges and universities are run And we also need to look at the Taj Mahal concept of the way buildings are built and even parking decks, as I believe Patricia has pointed out, on certain college campuses. Edifices are built for the egos of donors, and then they have to be maintained through the public um, trust over a period of many years. So there's a lot
0: to look at besides just the student loans. Patricia? Bill, um, as a, to put a button on this, we had a, an item in the jolt last week, a ton of criticism coming from Marjorie Taylor Greene and Andrew Clyde and Herschel Walker, um, all really hammering this decision to forgive a loan or to really have the federal government pay off those loans, frankly, um, and uh, disperse that among U.S. taxpayers. Um, Greene, Walker, and Clyde all also had PPP loans. Um, quite a bit larger than $20,000. They were all just (laughs) up around $200,000 for their their own companies, um, for their own family companies or in Herschel Walker's case for his poultry business. Um, Those were all uh, loans applied for, forgiven very quickly. Um, And there does feel like there is some kind of moral hazard to people applying for loans. They're forgiven, but without looking at that underlying cause for why these people took out these loans and cannot repay them, I think that's when we get into a real policy spiral. And I think the cost of education right now is literally unforgivable, although these loans may be forgivable. What we've done to students (laughs) right now is not.
1: Um, Patricia, very quickly, because I want to get to Sandra Deal in a moment. But um, the question becomes, Republicans think they may be getting some momentum back uh, for November uh, with the Biden uh, decision. But I really... And it does suggest he's, you know, it'll 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 add to their notion that he is a big, big government spender. Uh, the question is, well, it, what kind of impact will it have either way on the election? We don't know, but what's your guess?
0: Yeah, we don't know. I think this reinforces people's um, biases for or against the president. Either he is, you know, giving a, a helping hand to people who need it. He's there for... Um, kind of the Democratic coalition, uh, particularly uh, black leaders were really pushing Biden on this. He had made this promise during the campaign and they said, you have got to live up to this for Election Day. Um, so I, I think it just reinforces people's biases for or against the president at this point. OK,
1: P- Patricia, let me start with you on the final subject that we have just a few minutes for today. Uh, the funeral for Sandra Deal, the former first lady. Of Georgia, Nathan Deal's long long time wife was held on Saturday, and then there was a memorial, a tribute to her that uh, the public could attend later. You wrote a column in which you uh, reported on talking to some of the people who had worked for Mrs. Deal, had been around Mrs. Deal, and the 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 overall feeling of your column was that she was a truly beloved individual uh, during her tenure and beyond.
0: Yeah. And, you know, she you know, so spouses in the political world can really go either way, can either be the worst of times or the best of times for staff. And Sandra Deal really became like a family member, like a mother to nearly all of the governor's deal staff who I spoke with. They said she would um, throw them baby showers, throw them wedding showers at the governor's mansion. She would write them notes. Um, Katie Bird, who works for governor. Uh, Governor Kemp right now said that she had mentioned to Mrs. Deal that she was going to be in Athens over the weekend when she was working for her, and she came back to her chair the next day, and Mrs. Deal had left her a raincoat with a note that said, "Governor Deal and I checked the weather, and we, you know, we want to make sure that you're prepared." Um, just a lot of things, large and small, um, but really. There is now a group of uh, veterans from that campaign and that, uh, that time in government who feel like they've taken from Sander Deal the lesson to treat people with respect and kindness um, and to uh, believe in first chances and second chances. And so um, she also is very close with the prisoners who work in um, the governor's mansion. So they really painted a portrait of a woman who left an incredibly positive mark on the people she knew, and then those people now are in state government at very high levels trying to kind of live out that example as well.
1: Uh, Edward, we're really short on time, but because you p- knew Sandra Deal, I yep. think probably pretty well, uh, just give us, you've only got about a minute, but give us your thoughts.
3: Just, just very quickly, um, she was a, a class act with a warm heart, uh, and probably one of the most underrated attributes in life sometimes particularly in politics, is the the, the power of kindness. And she was a deeply kind person, uh, as was shown in Patricia's uh, article. You can tell a lot about someone by how they treat uh, the folks who work with them. And the fact that you're seeing this outpouring of love uh, for Sandra Deal said a lot. The the woman was was a power force in nature, and and we're going to miss her.
1: Melita, very quickly, partisan politics can be a real, real thorny area, but a person like Sandra Deal bridges uh, the parties with what Edward's talked about, kindness. Yes?
4: Well, Grace, and I think her unassuming manner, the fact that sometimes instead of staying at a hotel, she would stay in a state park cabin and meet the park staff the next day, and her focus on literacy is much admired.
1: All right. Thank you all. I, I really appreciate those final comments um, in today's show. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Melita Easters, Tammy Greer, Edward Lindsay, and Patricia Murphy. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. Until then, I'm Bill Nigget. Please take care and stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.